Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content, too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you downloaded. This is a series of ones and zeros. Thanks for being here. It is good to be with you. Uh, it's been a strange week. It's been a difficult week for much of the country here in the United States. Uh, the hurricane, what can you say? Hurricane Sandy uh, wreaking havoc off the East Coast, New York City, New Jersey, etc. cetera. Uh, to everyone listening out there, I hope you're doing well. If you were in the storm's path, I hope that it hasn't been too terribly bad for you. And if it has been terrible, then I hope it gets better soon. And speaking of making it better, I figured I'd give a quick plug to the Red Cross. If you're out there and you want to throw down a few bucks to help people who have been affected by this, just go over to redcross.org, redcross.org. 
uh, and it's pretty self-explanatory about how to donate once you get there. So, uh, and if you don't have money to give, then maybe give some blood or something along these lines. Is that a good thing to do? Uh, what else is happening? Uh, it's been beautiful in Los Angeles as a matter of counterpoint. And I certainly don't mean that to rub it in. It sort of makes me feel guilty, to be honest with you. Uh, you just sort of feel awful that it's been 80 degrees and sunny out here while so much of the country has been in dire straits. Uh, but that's the facts. That's how it's been. And, uh, you know, me being a recovering Catholic and having uh, all of this internalized guilt, uh, you know, part of me is like maybe we uh, should have an earthquake out here to sort of even things out or maybe like a wildfire uh, or a riot or something. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I've been social the past few nights, the past four nights in a row, I have gone out four nights in a row, which is highly unusual for me. Uh, I'm normally a shut in, but I've had obligations lately. I had a wedding. I had a friend in town. I had another friend in town. I had a friend's birthday party and it all kind of happened at once. And now, uh, in the wake of these four consecutive nights, I find myself exhausted. You know, it is, it is exhausting being social, at least for me. And, uh, you know, who are these people who are energized by other people? Who are these people who feed off of large crowds? You know, and I should also add that I feel guilty even talking about, uh, how exhausted I am when so many people on the East coast, uh, are, you know, far more exhausted and for much better reasons. But, uh, you know what, that's pretty much always the case. Uh, I think, you know, somewhere, Someone always has it worse than you. Someone is always more exhausted or whatever. No matter how shitty things are, you, know, you can always reframe it that way, which is what people will tell you. You can always reframe your suffering and realize that your complaints uh, are petty and your particular plight doesn't hold a candle to the intense and unholy agony of someone halfway around the world or halfway across the country or all the way across the country or maybe even just across town. And... <laughs> That's depressing. Uh, it really is a depressing thought for me. Like, it's like, you know, like, God, this sucks. I'm in agony. I'm suffering. I hate this. I'm miserable. But somewhere, someone has it even worse, as if that's supposed to be uh, somehow like cheering you up. You know, lots of people have it even worse, most likely. That's not a comforting thought. This life that we live, this existence, it's difficult. Uh,. You know, everybody's in dire straits eventually at some point. We're all sort of in it together, uh, which means uh, that we need to be nicer to each other. As if that weren't obvious. Have you ever seen that little statue of the Buddha weeping? Like, I'm not a very religious person, but, you know, among uh, religious iconography, I think that's my favorite religious icon. Just a Buddha sitting there weeping. That pretty much sums it up. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So anyway, my guest today is J. Robert Lennon. He is the author of several books, and his latest novel is called Familiar. It is now available from Grey Wolf Press, and it was the October selection of the TNB Book Club. That is the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the official book club of thenervousbreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community slash blog type situation. Uh, if you'd like to join the book club, it's a, ter- it's a terrific deal. For only nine ninety nine a month, that's less than the cost of an actual book, you, uh, you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. The titles are hand-selected by uh, myself and Johnny Evison. We try to pick some good ones. We, we try to pick an eclectic mix. Uh, so if you'd like to join the TNB book club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. And you can pay with PayPal. You can pay with a credit card. It's safe and secure, whatever you like. Okay? So uh, I think that's it. Without any further ado, let's get on with the program, shall we? This is my conversation with J. Robert Lennon, the author of Familiar. Well, I'm sitting in uh, the uh, back room of my house in Ithaca, New York, which is mostly used as a uh, practice space and music studio for my um musical endeavors uh and i'm surrounded by the detritus of yesterday's band practice and of course i'm sitting like everyone else in the world in front of a computer screen okay so you you play in a band in addition to doing all this writing well i I, I usually do a sort of solo recording project in which i simulate uh the existence of a band by playing all the instruments at separate times to a click track. Um, but I actually got together with some friends, uh, colleagues and students to, um, play at a party back in the fall or back in the spring. And we had such a good time. We decided to start writing songs and actually have an actual band. So I haven't been in a, in a, in a rock band in many years and, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be doing it again, must say. Okay. So you, but you, you can play an instrument. I am, ac- I actually have, moderate amount of musical ability okay so like what does that mean <laughs> it, it means that uh it means that i am uh i'm i'm uh um i'm basically a, a professional dilettante I, I play pretty much every instrument me- mediocrely passably uh as long as the the chord changes aren't too difficult so i mostly mostly play guitar in the band though okay so but you could you could pick up a guitar or you could sit down at a piano and you could fool me i could probably thoroughly entertain you for about five minutes and not entirely bore you for 15 and humiliate myself after 20. Okay. Okay. See, I, I, I humiliate myself immediately. So you have, to... <laughs> um, so what about singing? Can you sing? Yeah. Oh, you can. Okay. So you can do all this. So, uh, you have a, an enviable amount of talent. I mean, just like any, <laughs> any kind of musical ability. And I've talked about this before with people on this show, but I always say that, 
you know, music is sort of like the ultimate talent, like, you know, from an artistic standpoint, like writing is obviously wonderful and it has its rewards. But if I had both, if I had like the ability to uh, be in a band uh, versus the ability to sit down and write, I think I would take the music. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, if 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 adulation of others in real time is a thing that you like, then writing is definitely not uh, the career for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's nobody cheering you on as you sit there like hunched over your keyboard. When I, yeah, when I write a kick-ass sentence, you know, nothing happens <laughs> at all. Uh, if if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen a year and a half later. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully and. You know, when you sit down now, I mean, and you do this musical stuff, I mean, obviously it sounds, or at least it sounds like it's some sort of, uh, I don't know, like nice counterpoint to the writing work, or it sounds like sort of like this fun side project that you do, whereas the writing is something that's more professional in nature. Yeah, I I would say that's true. I mean, it's not that I don't have fun writing because it's it's a deep pleasure for me, and I uh, at least when it's going well, it is. But um, the music is uh, is pure pleasure, and uh, it's um, something to do with other other people. I, I I'm fairly social. Um, uh, I mean, I'm one side of me, of course, is an introvert, like every writer, I suppose. But I like to socialize and do creative projects with people. But writing is not really a thing I can I can uh, use for that. Um, so it's a it's it's great to have uh, it's great to have music in my life too. It's also something that I don't feel that I ought to be awesome at. I mean, I I. I don't think I am awesome at writing, but I want to be, and the pressure to be is always present. Um, whereas with uh, rock and roll, it's okay to just be all right at it, I think. Right. And do you find that the music gives you anything as a writer? Do you ever go to the music and then come away with something that you didn't expect to have uh, as you like return to, sit, you know, to return to a book that you're working on? Yeah, sometimes. I, I actually tried to write a novel about a rock band, and it was it was terrible in the way that um, things often are when people write about their their hobbies, um, but I, I think it's just a different part of the brain. Um, I don't do this anymore, but I used to have a guitar next to me while writing novels, so that um, I would you know write for twenty minutes and then play the guitar for ten and sort of solve problems in the subconscious while playing the guitar because that it left it left the writing part of the brain uh, idle. And uh, these days I, I do other things that, that enable me to do that. But it's pretty it's pretty, pretty reliable, a pretty reliable change of gears. And that always refreshes the, the writing. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm like, I sometimes get into this weird loop where I'll listen to like the same song or the same album every single day that I work. Yeah. Because it's like a, it sets a mood. Do you ever do anything like that? Well, do you do you actually listen to music while writing? Sometimes, but it has to be ambient. Like I have a really yeah. hard, I have a really hard time engaging with uh, writing when I have somebody singing in my head. I need, I need it to be uh, instrumental only. Yeah, um, my my wife listens to music while writing, and sometimes it's vocal music too. She can listen to rock and roll, but it has to be an album that, like you, she's listened to every day for six months, so that it's it's sort of part of the rhythm of her day. For me, I think because I like to play music as well. Uh, Listening to music is is horribly distracting. I can't concentrate on anything at all um, when music is playing, um, which makes it hard for me to write in coffee shops too. Although I've um, recently discovered this uh, white noise app that will pipe the sound of a of a you know primeval forest into my <laughs> into my ears while I'm in a bar, uh, and I've I've actually discovered that that will shut out enough of the world for me to actually write. Yeah, I have. I mean, uh, for me, concentration and and to lock in in the way that you need to lock in to write fiction is so difficult. 
that or, or at least i don't know I, I if i'm in a public setting it's really hard like it's hard enough when i'm in a, like a quiet room all by myself you know like uh, it's hard for me to be out in public and to work it's funny though i think the re- people's relationship to writing in public has changed over the past couple of decades i remember when laptops started to first be a thing that people had and used in a uh, a non geeky way and you'd see someone in a coffee shop with a laptop you'd be like look at that son of a bitch who does he think he is you know and now i'm the only guy in the coffee shop that doesn't have a laptop yeah everybody does everybody i, ca- does. I can't sit down because they have all the tables they're they're nursing a mug of coffee for five hours while they hog the window seat well that's it and not only hog the window seat but then they're hogging the outlets and you show up at the coffee shop and you're trying to find a table with an outlet <laughs> and it's stressful because right. your computer's gonna run out of juice and then I'm the kind of person who will wind up feeling guilty because I'm just sitting there with like a cup of coffee that I, you know what I'm saying? It's like, (laughs) yeah, you're just milking that table for like four hours while these poor people are like, you know, making lattes. And I don't know. It's just, it's not a good scene for me though. I have heard, um, that the library is probably a better option. I think, you know, tell me, tell me more about this library you speak of. I, (laughs) it just seems like a nice quiet space. You could get a carol. (laughs) That that would be like enforced concentration at a level that like a coffee shop probably isn't because there's people coming in and out and music playing and stuff happening. Well, before I, I worked at, I, I I teach uh, writing at Cornell and, um, before I got a job there, my, my wife and I lived in Ithaca for nearly a decade before I started working at Cornell. Um, and the job happened to open at the school down the street. So that was my only qualification for a job was that I could walk to it. So thank goodness something opened up. Um, I used to freeload uh, at the at Olin Library um, on the Cornell campus uh, and write there uh, when my kids were little. But uh, then I started working there and now it's where my job is. So I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to write there because that's my workplace, not my writing place. Right. But it, for, a while, for a while it was great. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I, 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 I'm so far uh, only able to write in this little office that I have in my apartment, and like that's as far as I've gotten. And I've tried other things, but this is where I keep coming back to. But the problem is that now that I have a kid uh, and she's starting to get older, it, you know, it starts to creep. She's two now, so now she's walking and she can knock on the door, and uh, it gets harder and harder to sort of carve out space. Yeah, and then pretty soon she's going to have a boyfriend. They'll be knocking on your office door. Hey, can we smoke in here? <laughs> yeah, I can't even ponder boyfriends. That's, that's, <laughs> that, better, that better be a long way off. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about like, where, where you're from. And I'm interested to know, um, you know how you came up and also um, you know, where these musical interests bloomed and then how eventually you came to writing. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. In a stable and intelligent family that encouraged my um, my interests, but um, my family is not uh, especially bookish or musical, um, and I'm I seem to be the only one who sort of took those paths. Though we all get along great and have a great deal in common, um, I was in bands as a teenager and had always sort of liked the idea of being a writer, but um, had not had the patience. Um, or humility to actually try to do it myself seriously. Um, I used to read, um, I think like every, every man approximately my age, uh, I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King and science fiction. And uh, Stephen King's story collections used to have these, um, I guess they still do, these uh, descriptions or explanations of, of how the stories came to be in the back. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I would read those. I almost like them more than the stories. These this uh, the, these tales of uh, the creative process that brought them to life. And I kind of uh, I think my desire to become a writer was really a desire to be able to explain myself to people in a book. Which now that you know, I've actually had the opportunity to do that now and then. I can't stand it, and I don't know how he can stand it. But it was something that uh, I was uh, I was romanticizing uh, writing itself for a long time before I did it. And then by the time I was a senior in college, um, I needed to fill some electives, and I took a fiction workshop, and uh, you know, it required a manuscript um, to get in, and uh, I had more fun writing it than almost anything else I'd done in college. So. Um, so that was the beginning of that. Um, a couple of teachers encouraged me and said I should go to an MFA program, and I didn't know what that was and quickly realized it was just hanging around writing for two years while um, you know, someone pays you uh, to, teach, to teach freshmen, and that sounded pretty good to me. So that was, that was how it all started. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to actually unpack here. First of all, like, I want to ask you about Stephen King because – Yeah, go ahead. It's a, you know, it's a it's – a, it's a ripe subject, and I feel like there's a lot of young men, just like just as you said, who uh, gravitate to his work, especially in adolescence. And you know, the the body of work that he's put together is just undeniably uh, successful in reaching readers. People <laughs> love it, and I'm curious to know if you have any sense as to why. Like, why is his work so incredibly popular? I think he is an extremely intelligent and imaginative person who should probably write half as many books and take twice as long editing them. Um, but he doesn't have to. And I don't think he really sees his work that way. Um, there's a level in which he's, he obviously, you know, deeply desires, uh, sort of main, mainstream, uh, even academic, um, adulation. You know, there's a period where he started being published in the New Yorker and, uh, you you know I, I, you, you sense that that was kind of something he always wanted. He always wanted that kind of recognition. But the fact is, I think he um, he could be about ten times as good of an actual writer as he is. But uh, I think his work is the sloppy product of a very sharp mind. And I actually still read him. I mean, I I don't I don't usually like him. Certainly not the way I did when I was a teenager. Um, but I but I still enjoy it. Yeah, and like just the mechanics of the stories are always there. You know what I'm saying? Like something about it is just working. And I remember as a kid reading The Shining and being like profoundly affected. It was just one. I mean, I remember actually physically where I was when I was reading it, which is extremely rare. You know, he, he yeah, he's really good at sort of metaphorically and emotionally powerful images uh, that uh, you know in. In the worst case scenario, they're you know they're they're uh, not attached to any kind of um, any kind of uh, prof- profound literariness, but they're nevertheless extremely memorable. And my you know my head my last book um, Castle was very much an homage to him, and uh, um, you know I was definitely stealing some tricks out of his playbook, doing it of course the way I would want to do it. So what about like writing when you have that kind of commercial success as a writer? And I think it's something that pretty much everybody who sits down to write books probably dreams of, at least to some extent. Um, you know, when you get to the point where you have that kind of readership and that kind of commercial demand for work, like might that affect how quickly you, 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 know, you feel the urge to get them out into the world as opposed <laughs> to stewing over them? And, you know, do you ever, I mean, because, uh, you know, obviously it, it sounds like you're taking more time uh, on your books and you're producing more slowly. Most people, most writers produce more slowly than Stephen King. Yeah, sure. He's pretty prolific. But um, the question then becomes like, are you thinking of your work 
from a commercial standpoint when you write it or are you trying really hard to, to limit yourself strictly to creative thoughts? I, you know, I'm not really – I'm not thinking about whether or not it's going to sell. Occasionally, I'll, I'll sort of gleefully think, ha, there's no way I'm going to sell this. And sometimes I'm right about that. But um, uh, as far as the first question, I have no idea what that would be like since I have not achieved that kind of commercial success. But um, uh, it's not – I'm not I, – I don't want to say that what I'm doing is a, is a, is a better – approach to writing fiction than Stephen King. I mean, I don't think I really have any right to. All I can say is that I know what will satisfy me and what won't. And uh, when I write a quick draft of something, um, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious to me what, you know, that something is wrong. Usually my wife will read a first draft and tell me what's the problem with it. And there are usually a lot of problems. But if something gets into print that I'm uh, ashamed of or that I wish that I had changed, I would just be miserable about it. So I'm do the best I can to eliminate anything from my books that I would be embarrassed by in the future. Yeah. See, but the, the thing, the thing about me is that I always find something after the fact, no matter what. <laughs> the key is to never look at the thing again. When you get the box of books in the mail, don't open them. Right. Just like set them on the shelf, use them as paperweights. Just, yeah, exactly. Like do not make the mistake of rereading your own stuff. <laughs> no, otherwise you're going to be like, you know, the whole last couple decades of your life, you're going to be Henry James and your, yourself uh, insane, <laughs> you know, rewriting the, your first novel. Yeah. Oh, God. So uh, let's talk a bit more about your uh, childhood and your family. You said that your folks, sure. like nobody in your family was particularly literary or, or, or musical. So you, do, you don't come from a family of artists. No, I'm, I don't. Um, although I do come from a creative family. I mean, the, I think my um, my dad's side of the family is uh, extremely skilled at uh, um, at rhetoric. You know, they they're big talkers. They know lots of anecdotes. They're good at uh, recalling uh, people's personalities. And this is this was a big inspiration for me when I was growing up. Um, and my mom has always been uh, crafty. You know, she's, she's good at uh, visual and uh, and tactile things. Um, and she's now retired. She's, she's been a, uh, uh, she retired as a, uh, human resources director uh, for a bank. But before that she had a, her own craft company, which she's kind of uh, revived, makes, uh, designs for children's rooms and things like that. And she's really good at it. Um, but I think I probably got from her the desire to be sort of immersed in a creative project. And then what did your, what did your dad do? Uh, he was a teacher, uh, at a middle school and then a guidance counselor and eventually, a. uh, uh, principal and superintendent uh, in the New Jersey school system. Oh, okay, okay. So sort of like an academic, crafty, yeah, set of parents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the specific things that I became interested in were not things that were especially interesting to them when I was growing up. But um, but they but I you know it's easy to read them as uh, um, as manifestations of parts of their personalities. Yeah, and it sounds like you had a pretty happy. I mean, you said it yourself. You had a pretty happy, like supportive environment. And I did too. And I think that, yeah. you know, sometimes you have artists, it seems like artists either come out of that environment or they come out of like a really unhappy or, or difficult uh, upbringing and not often somewhere in the middle, unless maybe I'm misreading it. But it seems like, <sighs> I don't know. I, I feel like maybe the, the sense of confidence or the willingness to kind of be creative, giving yourself that permission comes from having... Uh, oftentimes, you know, parents that encourage or parents that permit you to sort of goof around and do that kind of stuff. I mean, do you, do you sense that that is the case well, for you? 
that's where it came from for me. I mean, I, my, you know, my mom usually bugged me. My mom used to, you know, she, she was always uh, bugging me to go outside and play. And then she was always bugging my brother to come inside and read a book. Um, but, uh, for the most part, I got plenty of time to, to live in my own head and, and do what I wanted. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm probably giving my own kids too much of that. For instance, right now they're, they're probably just playing video games in the other room. Um, but, uh, uh, there's, there's also the, you know, the, the level on which, um, creative effort is a kind of rebellion for some kids. And, um, it's the thing that their parents don't do the forbidden thing that they're not supposed to be doing or that uh, their parents don't respect in them that then becomes their identity. And though that, that isn't the path that, um, that I took and I'm grateful for it. It is something that can work for some writers. Yeah, no, I feel like I probably oversimplified there. It's like, there's all sorts of different like points of entry, but it just often seems to be the case that when you have parents that are like, you know, uh, supportive, that it helps. I mean, it's an obvious kind of point, but it helped me, sure. But you know, there's they're supportive, and then they're supportive. There's a, you know, su- they're they're supportive parents who want to support you to be something that you don't want to be. You know, <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, like it, well, it could be scary. I think for parents sometimes when their children lean in, in a creative direction because it's a tough and it's a tough world and it lacks a sort of linear path. You know, that's well, easy to see. Yeah, there was there were years of familial dismay when I when my parents realized that I was actually serious about doing this thing for for my life. But um, it wasn't all that long before I you know I was able to publish a book and eventually get some work uh, in uh, in academia or make some make some money writing every now and then. Okay, so what about your brother? You said you have a brother. Yeah, he's uh, um, he works in uh, sports management and promotion. So at the moment, I think he j- he just got a new job. Uh, arranging to have stadiums named after companies, so he's he's the guy who's convincing various people to do that thing. Okay, well, okay, but this seems like a more linear path. So at least one of the children and your you know your parents have one <laughs> child they can like com- you know completely understand what they're doing. <laughs> well, maybe you should, you should you should interview my brother next, and then my mom, <laughs> and you'll get the full picture. Um, so okay, so where did you go to undergrad? Uh, Penn University of Pennsylvania in Philly. Okay, so you're there, and uh, you know, were you a, a good student? Obviously, you're a good student if you got there, but were you um, were you engaged? Y- yeah, I I I got B's at Penn for the most part, um, primarily because it was a time when I knew I was supposed to be thinking of a career rather than digging into my little personal peccadilloes. Um, but I ended up making the career out of the peccadilloes. So, uh, and that was. I, I wasn't. I feel like I wasted college, but I think everybody feels well. Maybe I not do. everybody. I do you really? Oh yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who have, who feel that way. I mean, some people more so than others, um, you know. But at least you went to Penn. At least you wasted your. At least you, <laughs> exactly. at least you wasted Penn. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, on one, on the one hand, I wasted my time for four years, but on the other hand, I paid a lot of money for it. So it all balances out in the end. Right. Right. And, <laughs> So, but you you never like had a like. Did you ever have a particularly wild streak? I mean, if you have kind of a rock and roll leaning, and you're sort of an artistic person, like, did you ever have a period of your life where you went completely nuts? Nope, <laughs> never. No, I I haven't I haven't even smoked a cigarette. I can't believe I'm hearing myself say this. The worst thing I do is I is I drink a lot, and even that I don't I don't really get drunk. You know, I I I'm deeply anxious and. uh uh, things like like I could I don't think I could have survived a, a rock tour you know I wouldn't have wanted to be in a band that got signed because I just wouldn't go home. <laughs> okay. No, you know it's interesting that, to hear you say this because I have friends and I can think of one friend in particular who 
um, was an extremely gifted musician. And of course, from the outside looking in, I'm like, why are you not in a van, you know, touring the (laughs) country? And, you know, it's easy for me to say, but now that I'm a bit older and I look back, uh, it's easy, you know, it's, it's clearer to me why, why, uh, he didn't want to do that. And it's because it's a, it's a hard life, man. I, I look at some of these bands that, uh, live on the road, you know, for 25 and 30 years and, and not like bands that necessarily reach the highest of heights in, in rock and roll. No, We're talking like bands <laughs> no. that like, you know, at best are living on a bus for 30 years. Like that's not easy. You know? No, you got, you really have to love doing stuff like that. And, um, I've, you know, I've traveled to do music gigs from time to time in various bands I've been in, um, and sort of gotten a taste of what it must be like to do that day in and day out for weeks and months on end. And, uh, it's really just not the life for me. It's, um, it, it, and I think that probably the hardest thing about it is having to do it with other people. Um, you know, I'm about to go on a book tour for the next month. In, you know, off and on um, to on three or four different plane trips to various cities, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. But it's because I know at the end of the day I'll be able to you know crash in my hotel room and read and take a bath, or you know hang out with the f- friends whose couch I'm going to be sleeping on. Um, but if I had to organize all this with three or four other people and be with them all the time and get along with them, I just I just <laughs> I think I, I think I'd quit. Yeah, no, I mean, and just like I think a lot of times, two people who gravitate towards writing, uh, either specifically or primarily in terms of uh, their creative uh, interest, you know, part of it, I think, is because collaboration, you know, especially creative collaboration, uh, isn't their cup of tea or is difficult. You know, you, you seem to sort of buck that trend, but I mean, I think a lot of writers just prefer to be on their own, sort of lone wolf style, you know. I- I keep getting dragged into collaborative writing projects and uh, every time I'm surprised to discover that I've, I kind of enjoy it. Um, but it's not my natural mode of working. And maybe one of the reasons I enjoy being in a band so much is that um, it's I feel actually feel free to let other people make decisions and to contribute aesthetically to the overall project. Um, but I did, you know, and I did be, these and to be blamed for the failure of the project. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Successes I'll take. You take the failures. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just wrote a, 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 a TV pilot with somebody and I've written um, uh, I wrote some short stories uh, inspired by uh, photoshopped uh, images that a friend of mine did. And these projects were really satisfying in a different way from from the way my usual writing is. Well, yeah, I mean, you can forget, I think, when you live on your little island and you're you're writing for weeks and months and years at a time, uh, how much energy creatively you can get from working with other people or just being around other people, you know, yeah. and, and being social. I think there's something to that. And, um, you know, I, I try to assess myself. And when you were talking earlier about how you kind of have, it sounds like you kind of split down the middle. You have the introvert and you can sit there in front of your computer and write, but you also like to be social, you know, I think I'm that way too, but, uh, you know, I I think I was reading something online recently where it was talking about the hallmarks of, uh, introverted people and how, when they're around large groups of people, uh, you know, they can be totally fine and functional and even enjoy it. Uh, but it's just at the end of it, they're depleted as opposed to energized and they need time to recharge. So is that the way that it is for you? Like when you go to a party, you can have fun and it's great and it's nice to be around people. But when you come home, 
you need to sort of like lie down. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can usually do without socializing for a few days after that. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot going around the internet about introversion. There's always a new uh, chart popping up on Facebook about what introverts are like and how it's, you know, how it's uh, it's rude to bug them about going out and so on. Um, but uh, I feel I feel. So feel sort of like I'm not an introvert. Um, I think that what I ultimately am um, is 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 uh, an extrovert with a, another self that is introverted. I am a uh, what's the, you know, the in the on Myers Briggs. I'm an ENFJ. Okay, I think I was like a yeah. I think I was like an EI. I mean, I want to say I scored like right on the middle of the EI index or something like that. I can't remember. It was so long ago that I did it, but I I get it. And I, you know. I think that I'm – I mean most people I think who know me would say that I'm not an introvert, but I definitely yeah. have that thing where I need to recharge. Like I don't come away from like a giant party or something and I, I don't come home like just buzzing with energy. <laughs> right. No, no, no. I, yeah, I fall into bed and go to sleep after a party. Well, and you know where I've been reading a lot of this too is I've been reading a lot of this in political news because there's all this hay being made about how uh, Obama's an introvert and – Clinton is an extrovert and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I guess those are maybe extreme examples, but like Bill Clinton seems to me like the ultimate (laughs) extrovert. Yes. Yeah. He, he, he's, he's, he is very outward focused to be sure. Yeah. No. And just like, seems to just like, I mean, to be able to move among crowds like that and to just feed off of it is, is, uh, you know, that's a different beast entirely. In fact, I think I remember reading someone talking about him. It was like one of his advisors and they were talking about, uh, or they were comparing him to like a dog. You know how like a dog, like <laughs> a dog will come up to you and like lean against your leg. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's sort of how. I mean, he just loves the contact. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. Um, so okay, so you took this fiction workshop uh, at UPenn, and that was like sort of a pivotal moment for you. Yeah. And then you applied to get your MFA and you went to Montana, correct? Yeah. Well, I worked at a bookstore for a year and I worked on my manuscript and um, applied to a bunch of MFA programs. Probably too early. Um, Montana was the only place I got in out of uh, seven or eight that I applied to. But I I loved it. I thought it was great. And uh, in fact, I'm going to Missoula uh, on Thursday for a part of the book tour. So um, I haven't been back there in about 10 years. Triumphant return. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know to what extent people in my old department are following my career, but I um, I have very fond memories of the town. I mean, that's where I met my wife, and we had our first kid there. And uh, when we got married, we were living there. So, um, but yeah, I, I I went to Montana and really liked it. It was a low key program, uh, and I learned learned I learned a fair amount from my teachers, but I think I actually learned more from my peers. Um, uh, my wife, Rian Ellis, was among them, and uh, David Gilbert, novelist and short story writer and screenwriter, and Andrew Sean Greer, San Francisco novelist. Um, and these these people were just great. Ed Skoog, the poet, uh, who is actually teaching at Montana now for a, for a, for a year. Um, and these are still people I you know talk to and send manuscripts to and so on. Right. So, yeah, so, you, know, you just meet other crazy people who do this it's a nice thing (laughs) well you know it's 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 rare and i tell my undergraduates this like they ask they ask what it's going to be like to get when they get out of school how do you know how do you continue writing and the answer is it's really hard to do because no one gives a shit when you are not in a fiction workshop and you finish writing a say a short story absolutely no one cares 
as far as the world is concerned, you have wasted your time. And having a small community of people who are obsessed with the same obscure thing that you are is uh, deeply pleasurable. And and uh, and for me, anyway, because I think because um, I'm so social, um, I just couldn't rely on my um, my own self confidence to get me through, you know, uh, the writing process. I really needed some kind of support from others. Sure, sure. I mean, did you ever hit? It sounds like you had a fairly seamless transition, though. I mean, you got into an MFA. Uh, you published relatively soon thereafter. I mean, did you ever hit walls or did you ever really go through periods where you were feeling bleak or, you know, like this wasn't going to happen? Um, no, uh, I've been quite fortunate because right out of graduate school, I had a, most of a novel draft and I managed to get uh, an agent interested in it. Um, and when I finished it, I sent it to her and she took me on and she isn't my agent anymore, but was for about 10 years. And uh, um, so I got fairly established fairly quickly. I've never been a a really great selling writer or very well known, but um, my career has been fairly consistent. It's had a few ups and downs, but um, I got nothing to complain about. Okay. So, uh, but how did you manage that? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, I mean, you must work in a really disciplined way. You have uh, teaching work to kind of stabilize you. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's an unusual Uh, level. It sounds like an unusual, like an unusually stable ride. Well, in the early days, you know, my wife and I had an inexpensive house and we didn't spend a lot of money and she also sold a novel and did pretty well from it. And my first few novels, there was a period where I was making more money with every passing book. And I thought that that would translate into higher sales, but the sales were actually going down. And there was a period where new, you know, a publisher would drop me and a new one would take a chance with me. Think, no, I, we're going to be the ones who are going to break this guy out and everyone else is going to feel like a fool. They'd give me a pretty decent advance, and that would get keep me going for another year and a half or two years. And meanwhile, we moved to upstate New York from Missoula, and there are four or five colleges around here, all of which we ended up teaching at. Ithaca College, Wells College, uh, Cornell had a, um, a comp job that lasts a year that, that I took. Syracuse, I filled in for Juno Diaz when he was on leave. And uh, so it felt like, you know, there was always a sense that if the bottom dropped out of the market for fiction, I would be in trouble. And that's precisely what happened. And at exactly the same time that it happened, my book, Happy Land, which had been accepted by W.W. W. Norton, um, suddenly got dropped because they feared uh, it was a, it's, it was sort of a I wouldn't say it's a Ramona Clay, but it's a it, it was a satire that referred to real life events. And they were afraid that the person in question, a wealthy woman, was going to sue. And so they wouldn't publish it. Um, and who's and, the person? Can you say? The person was a woman named Pleasant Roland. She was the founder of the American Girl Doll Company. And she was buying up a lot of property in Aurora, New York, which is a small town north of here where Wells College is. And was sort of transforming it into rather swanker, sort of touristy uh, um you know, kind of uh, pretty village. It was, it was already cute, but it's sort of rough around the edges. Like an adult version of like American Girl Town or something. Well, <laughs> that I mean, that is the that was the way a lot of people in Aurora took it, and um, I, I I got convinced by people there that this would make a great novel. So I said, yeah, it actually would, but stop telling me stuff about it. I'm just going to make it all up. I'm going to make up my own doll CEO. I'm going to make up my own town. I don't want it to be anything like the real people. But if you happen to know that, you know, about the drama in Aurora, then you would realize that I was referring to it. 
Uh, and in fact, that's what I did. And uh, no one resembles specifically anyone in real life. But the situation does re- resemble something in real life. So uh, I was assured over and over again that this was no big deal. And then um, at the 11th hour, um, I mean, the, it had already gone to the copy editor. Um, it, was, it was written, rewritten, and, and handed in. Um, some Somebody panicked. I never found out how it all went down, but I was uh, out the door. So uh, suddenly I didn't have any income and I didn't have a job. Uh, but the two fortuitous things that happened were that Harper's Magazine agreed to publish the book as a serial, uh, a shortened version of it as a serial. Um, the unabridged one will finally come out as an ebook, I believe, next year from Zank, Zank Books. Oh, cool, yeah. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And, um, uh, and the job opened up at Cornell. So I, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm finally qualified for something like this. Um, and I figured if I didn't, if I didn't get it, we would probably have to move. I'd probably have to go out in the open market and get an academic job like everybody else does. Uh, but lo and behold, I managed to get the job at Cornell. So, um, we got to stay in Ithaca and, um, you know, I've been, uh, churning away, uh, not in a panic on my writing ever since. Okay, so what? Just be, just to dial back a little bit, what brought you from Missoula to Ithaca? Like, what? Why oh, Ithaca? Yeah, we you just came here for the hell of it. Um, we we were looking for we were writers, which meant that we wanted to live cheaply and we wanted to live near smart people. So we looked at college towns. And Rian, my wife um, from Western New York, she used to come here on vacation when she was a kid, and uh, we came and checked it out and liked it. And oh, the other thing was that we were looking for a place to rent and a real estate agent persuaded us that we should buy sight unseen a house that someone had been murdered in because it was really cheap <laughs> because of the murder. And you did and, it. And we did it. <laughs> no and we lived in that house for 10 years and we sold it for four times what we paid for it because I guess I guess we, it got, you know, I guess after I guess the the uh the murder stank goes away after 10 years. Um, and now we live quite near there, just a couple a couple of miles down the road on the outskirts of town. Um, okay, so wait a minute. Let's stop for a second. <laughs> uh, first of all, the details of the murder. Did you ever? Yes. Re- did you investigate this? Oh yeah, hell yeah. It was that was like one of the one of the one of the favorite family activities. The first month we lived here was investigating the the murder that we would learn it was called the bookie murder. It was where uh, a bookie uh, knocked off another one and. Uh, and thus, there were no bookies left in Ithaca. <laughs> I was going to say, there, there can't be that many bookies hanging out in Ithaca. No, they caught the guy like the next day. It was, it was, um, it was a comedy of errors, I am told. A friend of mine was a reporter at the, uh, at the local paper at that time, and it was kind of a bonanza for him because uh, the, you know, the guy – the murderer – the, the guy was named Kenny Augustine, and I guess he's in Attica now. But he, he – uh, or maybe he's out. Who knows? Uh, he hired some kid to dress up as a UPS delivery man and carry a box with nothing in it to the front door of the house. And then when uh, the owner, the bookie, answered it, he uh, the guy stabbed him to death. Wait, the, UP, the UPS guy or, or the, the fake the fake UPS guy stabbed stabbed our guy to death. So and it, was then, like, it was a hit. Oh, it was a hit. Yeah, it was a, it was murder for hire, and it was like fifty bucks. They paid this guy fifty bucks to do it. Wow. And so who is yeah. – the, the killer was just some guy who needed 50 bucks that bad? Yeah, I guess so. Wow. OK. So now that you, you get this uh, real estate agent who's telling you that you need to go buy this house sight unseen for you know, a drastically reduced <laughs> price right. uh, and you buy it. I mean clearly you have no uh, 
superstitions? I mean, like, did you have any kind oh, of like no. any fear of like the ghost or the hauntedness? Or you, you like, what do you do? Do you burn sage? Is that what you do? To get <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. In fact, as when we moved here from Montana, we actually pulled over somewhere in South Dakota and grabbed some sage. And but I don't think we got around to burning it though, um, because it was when we got here, it was obvious that there was nothing creepy about the house. Um, it was just you know in crappy shape because. Bunch of hippies had been living in it for three years. You know, the, the rental company who owned it was not was in Manhattan. Like it was very much an uncared for property, and um, it was great. The neighbors were really glad that we bought it because it had been something of an eyesore, and we fixed it up and sort of learned how to be homeowners. And uh, the uh, you know there was never anything creepy about it. I, we, we actually had my parents come up here and take a look at it. They they lived in New Jersey at the time and now live in Pennsylvania, okay. and they. Uh, they drove up here and gave, took a look at it, and uh, we paid a house inspector to check it out. And everyone said, "Yeah, it's that's that's a good price. It's in good shape." And my parents said, "You know, white walls, wood floors. You'll like it. Yeah, blood stains, um, everything." Yeah, that's right. That's right. There used to be a, a creepy handprint on the back of the of the downstairs bathroom door. It's probably still there. I, we never we never cleaned it off. Really? But I, it, like, a, what kind of handprint? It was a handprint. It, well, I think what happened was someone was like staining the door, or, you know, varnishing the door and then leaned against it while picking a screw up off the ground or something. And, okay. But I, I, I like to think of it as being the, the, the it's, you know, it's being created by a ghost. Yeah. I mean, so the, but there was no, there were no apparitions. You saw nothing paranormal. Nah. Nothing. See, I never, I never do either. I never see any of this stuff. And like, I don't even know if I necessarily want to, but. You know, you see these things on TV, and you, I've, I've heard friends of mine talking about how they've, you know, they saw something, and none of that stuff ever happens to me. You know, no, no me no neither. One wants to contact me. No, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not. I won't go so far as to say I think it's all BS, but uh, it's, it just doesn't happen to me, and uh, I kind, I kind of wish it would. Kind of wish it would. When, Ed, when Ed Scoob, was who I mentioned earlier, was visiting us uh, when we first moved in, he, uh, um. After dark, after everyone turned out the lights, he 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 cupped his hands over his mouth and and went, Patriots by nine. <laughs> that was the closest we've come to being haunted. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your influences. Like you know, okay. we talked already about Stephen King, but as you got older and you went through, um, you know, your education and everything, like who are the writers that really? Uh, you know, got you started on this track and that you feel like, you know, you're sort of standing on their shoulders with your own work. You know, I actually wrote a really snarky blog post about this topic because this is a question that everybody asks all writers, I think. And I'm a little, I think it's a misleading question in a way because at least for me, I don't feel that other writers are necessarily my most important influences, though I can certainly rattle off a, a bunch of them for you. Starting from when I was a teenager, I read all the sort of science fiction classics and uh, I went to college in the late 80s and discovered Raymond Carver and Ann Beattie and Alice Munro, the, the writers who were um, – who were. Uh, well, I was going to say peaking then, but Alice Munro has kept on being awesome uh, pretty consistently, I think. Um, and, uh, and those writers are all important to me. And then I read the classics in college and grad school, the Russians. I love Chekhov and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And uh, more recently have read, uh, read Ulysses and, uh, and all of Proust and find these – things to be inspiring and wonderful however i feel like my 
writing comes as much from things that aren't literature as they do from any books that I read. And um, I mean, I do think writers should read uh, as much as they can. Uh, but um, I like other things as well. Steve Martin, Monty Python, video games when I was in a teenager, uh, you know, music. Experiences outside of the house. I mean, you know, like I, I, just, I actually just had this conversation with somebody yeah. uh, yesterday, and I, I just went to Israel to do a little research for a book that I'm working on. And it was a quick trip, and I was sort of describing it, and I was talking about why I did it. And part of it was just practical, like I needed to do some on the ground research. I needed to see it because Israel factors into my book. Right. But there was also. Um, you know, a part of me that's like, well, you know, I spend so much time sitting in this office looking at my computer screen for weeks and months on end, uh, you know, staring at the blank page. Like, uh, if you have an opportunity to go do some sort of experiential research or to get some sort of big experience out of the process, I think you should try to do it. Uh, because, yeah. I don't know, life is short and it also, I think, adds something not only to your work, but to uh, your existence, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a traveler, and uh, I I'm very much a, a homebody. But I will say, for me, the equivalent of that is just other people. Um, as I think I said in this uh, blog post slash essay, I wouldn't trade my favorite writer in the world for even one ex girlfriend. You know, just the experience you have getting to know people intimately and being frustrated with them and loving them and not loving them and talking about them with other people is invaluable and it's really where it's really where um almost all of my work comes from is the is the quirks of other people's personalities and you do not have to travel very far to find weird ass people because you are one of them and they're all around you right 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 and just uh like, like i don't know like you say the depth of experience that you have just getting to know one human being <laughs> yeah um you know can can give you an entire book or more oh yeah definitely so, uh, what about like this? You say you don't like to travel, like, and you're a homebody. Like, why is that? Do you do you have any idea? Like, are you, are you like I, a really regimented or anything like that? Do you have like a, I don't know. Like, I don't want to make you sound too uptight, but you don't have. No, I'm actually not uptight, and I and I am. I used to be when I was younger. Um, I was pretty uptight. Now I'm pretty chill, actually. Like traveling within the United States, I'm going to be. You know, like I said, I'm going to be on this book tour. Um, I'm leaving on. Uh, Wednesday, and I'm going to go to New York, take the bus to New York. I'm going to fly to Montana, I mean Seattle and Portland, and so on. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it almost with total pleasure. Um, but traveling abroad, where I don't understand the culture and have to spend a lot of the time learning the ropes, uh, I don't find enjoyable. I mostly just am deeply. It makes me deeply anxious. Um, even, you know, we my family went to uh, Scotland for the month of July this year because we have friends in Dundee, Scotland, and they were, they were going to be in Florida during July. So they said, uh, just stay at our place. So we, we switched countries. And um, even that, where everyone speaks English and is friendly and uh, it, the culture makes perfect sense. Uh, I was, I spent the first week in a state of deep anxiety, you know, just driving a car, um, on the wrong side of the road and money and not being able to understand people's accents. And this is very, very mild, uh, alienation, but it was, it was, it was actually difficult for me. The second two weeks we were there were, were great, but, um, uh, but I feel like, uh, I, 
in in retrospect, I don't re- regret going to any of the places I have gone, but um, mostly I had to be talked into going to them. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and you like where you live. I mean, it's not a yeah. bad spot, right? No, definitely. Um, so what about how you work? Like what about the way that you actually do the work itself? Like are you an everyday writer? During the during the school year, no. Um, I'm. I, it's catch as catch can during the school year. I'll typically either do short stories or I'll edit a novel while I'm teaching. And then uh, over winter break and in the summer and on leaves, I will I'll write like a like a mofo. Um, so I've got a sabbatical coming up um, in January, and uh, I will spend about uh, six seven months drafting the large part of a new book. Uh, at least I hope. Um, and uh, uh, then revising more in, in, in the winter over break. Uh, I pretty much get up in the morning on writing days, and I'll write for three or four hours, and then I'll, uh, um, and then I, and then I just can't take it anymore. Then I'll eat some lunch, and I'll just futz around the rest of the day. Yeah. No, I mean, like first thing, best brain, first thing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then what about this futzing around? Like, are you going to see movies, or I guess you're kind of noodling around in your music studio. <laughs> You know, we got out of the habit of seeing movies when our kids were little um, because it just didn't seem worth it paying a babysitter to go and pay to see a movie. We're going to spend – if we're going to go out, we were just going to talk you know, over dinner or over drinks. Um, So we should get back into that habit because the kids can basically see all movies now. They're teenagers. Uh, But um, I would – you know, I'd read uh, and uh, would play play the guitar or – you know, record some music, um, play the drums, like just do fun things that are not writing to recharge, recharge that part of my brain. Yeah. 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 And when you talk about like the, you were talking earlier about the electronical music that you do or electronic mm-hmm. music like, and, and how you, you're basically generating all the sounds. I mean, like did, when did you come to that? Like you can actually do that now. Like these are all synthetically generated. Oh no, no, I'm actually, I am, I'm actually for the most part putting a microphone in front of a musical instrument and playing the musical instrument. Oh. But I do, I do play, you know, I do like electronic music, drum machines, uh, synthesizers, things like that. Um, but I have a, I have kind of an old school, uh, aesthetic. Um, you know, I actually was before you uh, before you skyped me. I was actually recording on a real real tape machine, an actual functioning tape machine. Oh, that's okay. Like like Jack White style, like fully like yeah, analog. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's not. I don't. You know, I don't. I'm perfectly comfortable in the digital realm, but I actually like to do that kind of tactile stuff now and then. Okay, and just be, because it sounds better, or just because you like the gear and you like the process. It's, it's because I like the process and the gear. I, you know, you can you can make a computer sound, make anything sound like anything. It's really not. Um, it's not. That, I don't think that's a, a, ter- a terribly controversial um, uh, statement anymore. There was a time when there was, I think, a qualitative difference in, between the analog and digital realms. But um, I think I think for the most part, it's it's the aesthetics of of playing and recording now that, um, that bring, that keep people in the analog realm. I think if if there's people who have really well-maintained professional tape machines and they do have something very special about them in terms of sound. Um, but for people like me, you know, I've got a, I've got an old TAC four track reel to reel and it sounds like a tape machine, but it also sounds kind of crummy. You know, right, right. but it's got it's got it's got lights and and uh, VU meters, and it has moving parts, and the the reels spin, and it's a beautiful thing, and it feels good to be sitting next to a beautiful thing as you're making sounds. Sure, yeah. And then what about writing? Like you're not writing on a typewriter or anything like that, are you? 
No, although one I wrote one novel that took place in the 40s. I decided to just use period tech to write it. So I did the first draft on uh, legal pads and then the second draft on a manual typewriter. And then I finally typed it into a um, laptop. And it turns out that it made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> but say, It's like method. It's like method yeah. writing. Yeah, I thought you know just putting these obstacles between me and the work, and I was I was reading about a, about an interview with a poet saying that you you know, if you're not right, typing on a computer is not writing. You need to have a, pen, a pencil in your hand and a notebook, and I just think that's a bunch of horseshit. I mean, I, I believe that it, that that poet and some other people do feel that way, and there's something very special about that process. But there's nothing. Uh, inherently different about it. You're what you're, you're transferring thoughts uh, to a form that other people can read, and there are a, a thousand ways of doing it, and they, they'll all they'll all work for somebody. Yeah, no, I mean for me, it's like the reason I like to type uh, on a computer is just that, or just type in general is the fact that like I can't write fast enough. Right, right. I, I don't like the lag. You know what I'm saying? I like being able. I can almost type at the speed of thought, which makes it. Uh, just much more enjoyable for me. And plus my handwriting, especially over a long period of time, just turns into chicken scratch. So I I will say though, I bought, I usually write on my laptop, but sometimes I'll come back to the studio where there's a computer I usually use to record music on, but I've got a word processor on it as well. I bought, um, it's a, you know, it's an iMac and it comes with those little chiclet keyboards, the wireless chiclet keyboard. And I got, got rid of that and I bought one of these retro, clicky like super heavy metal clicky keyboards that make a lot of noise when you uh you know the key travel is about a quarter of an inch and uh it makes a satisfying sound when you and feel when you like press a, like a percussive kind of thing yeah here it's right here holy here it is oh yeah there we you go. know yeah yeah that's the thing. So, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I, I, I thought uh, for a moment there, I thought I was going to kill. I was I was killing uh, Skype. So anyway, um, and there's there's something kind of special about it. You know, I come back here and I'm banging out a short story, and it, I feel like it's uh, you know I feel like uh, I feel like it's 1982, uh, and I'm a I'm a I'm a Silicon Valley nerd. You're in, you're on a Commodore 64. <laughs> that's that's right. Getting it done. That's right. I'm I'm uh, I'm in the bash shell banging out code. Well, yeah, no, I mean I can see oh. that though. Like that, like having commands. Some, having some sort yeah. of sound is nice. And then like I've, you know, I'm always interested in like these little quirks of people's processes. And like I have a friend who swears that uh, you know working on a laptop is fine, but working on a desktop with a giant screen is super helpful. <laughs> like the bigger uh-huh. the monitor, the bigger the what does he say? He always like. Bigger the monitor, bigger the ideas, or something like that. You know, <laughs> you know like the, si- the size of your monitor is like directly proportional to like the you know oh. the, the breadth of your creativity. And then uh, <laughs> I had Paul Tatongi on this show, um, you know, several episodes back, and he was I think it was him. He was telling me that he sits down with a wireless keyboard, but he's away from his monitor, so he cannot see it. No and, way. Yeah, and he, and he just types. So that, like, you know what I'm saying? It's all in his head, and he doesn't have the urge to revise. And you know what I'm saying? It's like this. That's bizarre. Yeah, he sits in a chair, closes his eyes with a wireless keyboard in his lap, and then just like, you know, lets the stream of thoughts take over or whatever. That's. I'm very impressed with that. Yeah, no, me too. I and like, the, not only am I impressed that he can do it because I don't think I could. I think I sort of need to see the words as they unfold on the screen. But uh, I just think it's like a creative approach. Like I'd never thought of that. You know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but let's talk a little bit about familiar before I let you go. Like just, All right. I'm interested in just having, you know, hearing you talk about the origin story for the book. Like where did it originate? 
It originated in um, uh, when my third book came out. um, I had a book tour scheduled and flew to – I was supposed to fly to Iowa um, to Cedar Rapids and then to drive to Iowa City for the first event at at Prairie Lights. But it was September 11th, uh, 2001. So terrorist attacks happened while I was in, in a plane. And when I landed in Chicago, the whole airport shut down, as did every airport in America. So I was stranded in the Midwest and managed to rent one of the last cars at O'Hare and just drove back to Ithaca over three or four days. And um, it was – Let me stop you right there. You land at O'Hare and it's 9-11. What was the scene like? By the time I landed, the attacks had already happened, but no one knew what was going on. So I didn't even glance at you know at the the, mo- the monitors, or I wasn't listening to what people were saying. I just w- I just I wanted to find my gate, and then I wanted to get something to eat, and then I would sit down and wait for my flight. So by the- I went to the gate, I found it, everything looked fine. I went and got a bite. I came back, and I could just I just saw the you know I saw the board. Uh, I don't know what they call it. The- the flight schedules, you know, just clicking over to cancel, 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 cancel. And then when I went up to the, I was flying United. When I went up to the United counter um, and said, "Hey, what's going on?" the the clerks there were crying. And uh, at that point, I thought, "Whoa, this is really strange." Uh, and there were all kinds of misinformation flying around. You know, people were saying that um, that uh, there had been an attack in Chicago. Like I was in Chicago and people had convinced themselves that, say, the Sears Tower or something had been hit or was in danger of being bombed or something. Isn't and so, of course, isn't that so strange how crazy that like and how warped like people's sense of reality can get in a situation like that? I mean, it's it, it is amazing. And we were you know, I was if you rent a car at O'Hare, you have to take a shuttle like you know, far, far away from where the actual air proper is to get, at least at this time, to get, a, to pick up the car at the, you know, the Hertz Corral. So I had, um, I'd had the foresight to, to call the Hertz 800 number to reserve a car by phone before I got in the shuttle to go out to the rental car desk. So when I got there, I got to, you know, everyone just got in line and I was actually, my car was actually waiting for me. So, um, uh, but on the shuttle, it, I was just, I was just, you know, shoulder to shoulder with all these strangers, all of whom were just sort of panicking. Like we, there was no, uh, no, no one knew what had happened exactly or why or where it had happened. There were rumors flying, and everyone was just paranoid that something was going to happen in Chicago. And so we were all just trying to get out of Chicago. Yeah, you know what I remember about that day is I just remember how quiet it was. Like there were no well, no planes in the sky. Like and everyone was just sort of subdued, and I don't know what it was. It was just it felt extra quiet well that's actually where where i come back to the novel because it felt like a parallel universe Uh, driving home with no planes and you might remember that week was absurdly sunny it was a a cloudless skies all the way across america and um other people in their cars were clearly doing what i was doing which was listening obsessively to the to the radio and um i tried a few years later the following year to evoke this in fiction, I, I got this idea of a woman who is driving a car and then she enters a parallel universe and I just didn't know what it was going to be about and it, it failed. Like I stopped after 40 pages or so. Um, and then years later when I was thinking about what novel I should write next, I remembered that one and um, I went back to it and it was terrible. So I printed it out, deleted the the file and started typing again from the beginning and this time I, I pushed through and uh, – it ended up turning into this book. Okay, so what changed? Like, do you feel like, I mean, obviously there was a, a gestation period somewhere in your subconscious that happened over that period of time. 
but do you? I mean, can you point to anything specific about how you had changed personally, or how your perspective on the story had changed that allowed you to, yeah, push through? Yep, sure. Well, I came up with the what the book's actually about, which is parenthood. And I, by that time, uh, my kids were older; they were entering their teen years, and uh, I was thinking about the effect my wife and I have on them uh, and what we don't have an effect on and how it's impossible to tell the difference between the two that um, I think I said in an interview recently, something like uh, parent parenting correctly is basically impossible. And it's very hard to accept that and to realize you're never going to know which things you did right and which things you did wrong. Um, and uh, I parlayed that into uh, it's the sort of domestic drama that is at the heart of the book. The, as the drafts went by, the sci-fi stuff became less prominent and the emotional stuff became, became more prominent. And ultimately, the only the, – the meaning of the sci-fi thing is just a, a way of exploring the, the paradoxical nature of trying to raise kids. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's, it's like when you work on a book, it's, it's sort of interesting that – and I think that people looking from the outside in often assume that the big thematic ideas uh, are the point of genesis when a lot of the time uh, the big thematic ideas take a long time to make themselves apparent even to – Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I, I – you know, I didn't want to write about that shit. Who wants to think about that? Yeah. You know, who wants to think about how you're damaging your kids? <laughs> I, want, I, want to, I want to write a, you know, a zany science fiction novel. Uh, but it sneaks up on you. You know, the stuff that's important to you is the stuff that obsesses you and you gotta, you gotta let it onto the page. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an, it was, I kind of knew it was gonna, that one of the changes was going to be that one of her children was dead, but it wasn't going to be about being a parent. It was going to be about, um, why different series of events. It was going to be sort of butterfly effecty, you know? Um, but that stuff uh, was much less compelling to me than the than the um, the emotional and, and uh, um, psychological stuff. And then what about like the like do you feel? I mean, the book is is, is got its it's got sadness in it. You know what I'm saying? Like when you look at that, like did you do you find yourself wrestling? Because I find myself doing this, where like my instinct in terms of serving the reader is to want to try to be funny or to try to like entertain. Yeah, uh, but you know you can't. Sometimes there's also great sadness in in the work, um, or at least in my work. I, I think there is, um, it, like almost inevitably, it's always a mixture. And I guess comedy is sort of a got its roots in sadness too. But like, how do you reconcile that? Um, you know, I don't. I'm not. I'm not thinking about it when I'm writing it. I didn't think of this book as sad until my friend read it and said, "Boy, that book's really sad." And I was startled. <laughs> like sad? Just, it is. You just crushed my soul. <laughs> No, but the fact is it really is sad and um, of course it's sad. But I, I, I was looking at it I, – I subscribe really to the Nabokovian uh, idea that, that I'm, I'm in control. The characters do not take over. I don't sit weeping as I compose my, my moving sentences. I'm the, you know, the, the process itself is, um, uh, is more detached and chill and composed. Uh, but I hope that the effect is very emotional. Well, well, I'll tell you, I uh, I really wish you the best with this, and I appreciate the time, and uh, good luck on this tour. Where are you, where are you headed out to? You're going to Missoula, and then you're going out to Portland and Seattle? Yeah, New York, uh, Missoula, and then uh, Lawrence, Kansas, Iowa City, Seattle and Portland, and uh, Boston, or specifically um, uh, Newtonville Books in Newton, and then back in Brooklyn in uh, November for the Franklin Park Reading Series. So um, it's all on my website. It's jrobertlennon.com. The, the tour schedule is there if, if 
anyone of your listeners lives in those cities, I would love to, uh, to see them at the readings. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time, and I wish you all the best with it. Thanks, Brad. It's great talking to you. Okay, you guys, there we go. That is the program. That's J. Robert Lennon. Go get his new book. It is called Familiar. It is out there now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find him online at jrobertlennon.com. He's on Twitter, at jrobertlennon, and he's also on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. If you want to throw down a few nickels to help the program and keep it going, you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com by clicking on Donate up there in the right sidebar. The show has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my strange and confessional personal tweeting the show has a facebook presence and if you would like to email me and let me know what you're thinking the address is letters at other uh, please don't forget to go get the new other people app the free official other people app it is available for your iphone your ipad your ipod touch or your android device it's free and it's the best way to listen to the show it's got all kinds of bells and whistles so go get that thanks as always to kill rock stars for all the great music be sure to check out kill and uh, what else? What to say in closing? Pain, suffering, perspective, reframing, natural disaster, humanity, chaos, climate change, the Mayan apocalypse. It's all happening. It's all happening everywhere. And uh, what do you do in response? I think it's a good idea. The best I can come up with is to uh, read good books and to write things or paint things or sing songs. Just try to make something uh, nice before it all goes up in smoke. Do you know what I'm saying? Please remember that William Burroughs died of heart failure and that William Blake was convinced that at the age of four he saw God watching him through a window. That is all for now. Uh, That is the end. Uh, I think we have reached the end of this program. I will be back again soon, though, with another episode uh, every Sunday and Wednesday. That's the way it works. That's the way it happens. Sundays and Wednesdays, me talking to an author about stuff. Uh, I've got some good shows coming up, too. Some good stuff to look forward to. So there's that. And uh, did you notice uh, that I didn't talk about my own writing this time? I didn't say anything. I didn't complain. I'm trying to avoid that right now. I am avoiding that right now. I'm trying to stay away from it. I'm trying to let things breathe. Uh, I might be in denial. I might be running away from myself. I might be confessing right now on the podcast that I'm in denial and that I need to get back to work. I need to just do it. I need to quit obsessing about it. I just need to see the work and do the work. Who said that? Did the Buddha say that? The Buddha is weeping.